afternoon. Yeah, you're right about uh, it doesn't feel like autumn. No. You have to, like, trick yourself by, like, drinking pumpkin-flavored things. Yeah. You said break out a flannel, and I, s- I actually sweated a little just imagining wearing a flannel here. Um, it's really good to be with you guys. Good week? Good enough? Yeah, all right. <laughs> That's good. Um, well, I have the privilege of discussing the church, um, very important thing to talk about, I think. Uh, I've been a part of a church for a long time now. I feel like I've been a part of an active part of a church more than I haven't <laughs> at this point in my life. Uh, I've had some ups and downs, uh, but my, I've, I don't know if I've shared this here, but my whole family is a product of life in the church. Like I met my wife here. Um, not here, but in, in, in among God's people. Um, our daughter is also a massive gift. We're a family because of the generosity of people in our churches who have given us money so we could build a family because biology resisted. Um, and so I just, there's a, there's a lot of uh, gratitude in me for being a part of a church. Um, I also hate being a part of a church. <laughs> it's also really challenging sometimes being a part of the church. Um, I don't hate it. Uh, you know what I mean. Um, but what I'd love to do is try to uh, hook our thinking about the church into the, the wider story in the Bible. Um, because the, the church is, is not like a left turn, a new religion. Uh, something completely out of the blue. Uh, now, if, if you had been reading uh, what we call the Old Testament, by the time we encounter the church in the New Testament, it can feel a lot different than what we were reading about with Israel. So there are some, there are some things that um, are kind of surprising about the church that you might not have caught reading the Old Testament. But that's different than saying that the church is a whole new thing. I'll hear the phrase a lot. Uh, say people were a New Testament church. It's like, well, that's, that's kind of true. Um, because for those of us who, who um, are trying to pay careful attention to Scripture and read it faithful, we see that uh, what and who and when we are is something that's been in the works for quite a long time. Does that make sense? Um, so, yeah. Um, I wish we probably should have spent more time just talking about the coming of the Messiah. But I thought uh, the season of Advent is just around the corner. Uh, And that talks not just about the the whole season is is focused on uh, not just the birth of Christ, but the coming of God. We believe he shall come again. And I think there'll be ample time in the weeks leading up to the holiday uh, to talk about the Messiah, hopefully. Um, but but uh, today I, I want to talk about the church. And I think in doing so, we'll, we'll learn a lot about uh, Jesus, <laughs> I hope. Um, just to get us started. The church, far from being an afterthought in the plan of salvation is arguably the objective of the entire triune action. That is to say, 
as far as God is concerned, the church is the point, um, which is to build up a people in Christ to be the vanguard of a new creation. The idea here is that to be the church is to be a part of God's ancient purposes, but it's also to be a people who steward and represent a new creation. We're not just a group of people who gather to sing songs. We are a people who are, in fact, an act of God's creative ability. And as we'll see today, wisdom and love. Um, but this is, it's, I think it's important to see the church as part of the larger story of Scripture because it will help us, I think, learn a little bit more about how we should live. And I've, I've mentioned this a few times as I've spoke to you, uh, that the idea here is to give us a different vantage point on our lives, on the world which God has made, and on the community, the church community of which we are a part, that, um, that uh, the, the, the Bible is trying to maybe not replace the story we're living with and living under, but maybe gather it up and include it in a much better and larger story and let the light of God's story shine on maybe the wrong terms we've made in our own story or where, where we've been off course. Now, one of the ways, I've described it as a drama in five acts. Um, and this means then, if, if the Bible is kind of like a drama, this means that the biblical text, the Bibles which sit on our shelves, is almost like a script. That is, it is something we take and act out our part. Does this make sense? Now, a lot of that, of course, means reading and obeying, but it's, it's bigger than that. And that actually will not cut it, because the kind of life that Scripture is aimed at is all the way down to our innermost self. Not just what we're doing, like doing the right things, but at what we want, what we're shooting for, what we're hoping happens in the world. The Bible has, is aimed at reforming everything within our broken selves. And it does that largely through telling a story. Now, as soon as I tell you that we have to act out our part, you might have heard me say, I mean, pretend. Just like act, be like an actor and, and perform the text like an actor would say any old play. But it's more like this. Are you familiar with this, this movie? Okay. Um, it's kind of tr uh, psychologically traumatizing, this movie, actually. It's, it's a documentary film. Um, uh, it, its title is, okay, let me see. The full title of the, uh, of the film is Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton. Uh, that is a terrible title. Um, uh, directed by Chris Smith, 2017, released on Netflix. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a documentary which follows Jim Carrey. You know Jim Carrey, right? Kids, young people, you know Jim Carrey? I hope, I hope so. We need to have a longer service if, if you don't. Um, 
Dumb and Dumber, right? Okay, it doesn't matter. Um, But Jim Carrey played Andy Kaufman. Do you remember Andy Kaufman? This younger generation probably won't remember. Remember the TV show Taxi? He, he was involved in that. Andy Kaufman was like a, uh, what would you call him, like a performer? Like, not really a comedian, just a, an eccentric guy who died um, several years before the, this film. But Jim Carrey was involved in a making of his life called Man, uh, Man on the Moon? Man in the Moon? Man and the Moon? Man on the Moon. Um, and to prepare... For the role of playing Andy Kaufman, Jim Carrey did did something that many actors do as they prepare to play another character. He convinced himself he was that character. Even when the cameras weren't running, he would not snap out of character for a long time. And this film is about this whole season of Jim Carrey being convinced he's actually Andy Kaufman. And it is tough to watch. People who knew Andy Kaufman when they interacted with Jim Carrey during this period while they were filming, they thought Andy Kaufman was with them again. He was alive again. It was unbelievable how he mimicked and embodied Andy Kaufman's life. He couldn't snap out of character even at night when he's home alone. He had difficulty. The movie is kind of like almost like you see there's been a lot of therapy involved, but learning to separate himself after the film from Andy Kaufman was tough. That's kind of what it's like to read the Bible. Only you don't take on the character of Andy Kaufman and it's not disturbing. But you learn to embody not just a way of doing certain things, but becoming the kind of people who would do good in God's world. So that it's not just from the outside looking in and then performing what it says by, you know, making sure we're getting everything, you know, everything completely perfect. But it's about learning to enter in and embody the very life of faith that's described in Scripture in each time and in each Place And it doesn't always look the same in each time and each place. And that's where the hard work of careful study and reading is very important. We know when we're not taking the script seriously. We know when we've made a mistake. But that's what it's like to be in the church, I think, to take the text serious enough that we almost, and you hear the words of Scripture coming into view, lose ourselves. Die to ourselves. Paul will say, I don't even care about myself anymore. To live is Christ, he will say. He, he says, um, he says I, I, my only hope is that I might participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paraphrasing. But you get the idea. We become the kinds of people God has always wanted. And we do that. We are able, at least, to do that in a position to be able to do that by knowing the main idea of the story. And if we don't know that, then we're going to resort to careful bookkeeping. And I got to do that right. And I got to do that right. And I got to do that right. And Jesus has something to say to that approach to God. Uh, There's all kinds of words in Scripture 
about that sort of approach to the Lord. God is looking for something deep down. Once you've come to church and punched your card, don't say to yourself, I've done exactly what God has always hoped I'd do. (laughs) There's more. So we're learning to get this into our bones to replace whatever uh, ridiculous story we're living in. But today I want to look at uh, the first 14 chapters of Ephesians with you. Feel free to turn there. I think I have passage in a couple of slides, too. In a few slides, I have that passage. But um, uh, but this passage, I think Paul provides a response to or an answer to a few questions. Um, What is the church? What is she? (laughs) What is she for? Or why is she? (laughs) Um, When is the church? Remember I talked about this, knowing where we are within the scheme of time. When we are. It's really important that we know when we are. Because we will make some crucial mistakes if we think we're some, at some other time in the flow of God's uh, will. And who is the church? That is, of whom is it made up? Um, well, let's read it. Here we go. Uh, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." How many of you are exhausted? (laughs) Like, oh, where do we start with what he just said? I kind of read it in a way to exhaust you too, by the way. I read it very fast and very chant-like. I did it on purpose. Because this this passage is is unique. It's actually not that unique for Paul, uh, but it's, it's different enough to stand out. Now, let's go back to the first line. Where are we at here? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think, Bible readers, where do you hear language like that in the Bible? Now, keep in mind, this is a, this is a letter. This is an apostle 
writing a letter of instruction. Now, Paul writes letters. The first two verses is pretty standard. There's some variation, but it's something like, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle. God loves you. You are the holy people. And then he'll launch into something like, I thank God for you. I'm doing fine. You know, I heard you guys are doing well or I heard you're doing terrible. But this is something different. He opens this letter rather than like some general thanksgiving. He launches into blessed be the God. Where do you hear language like that? Think about it. Yes, the attitudes. But but it's not blessed are those blessed are those blessed is God who has blessed us. There's a book right in the middle of the Bible that sounds just like this. The Psalms, right? It's like he opens a letter with praise. Before I get to the point, the point is, look at what God has done. Praise God. Praise God. And it's actually blessed. And there's a bunch of repetition in this passage. Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's tough to even unpack just that sentence. But, but you notice that this letter starts almost, almost like a hymn. Some have suggested this, this, uh, these verses are like a baptismal liturgy. That is, you read it when someone is baptized. No one can prove that. Some have suggested it's like the Jewish barakah, like a, a, a Jewish blessing um, whatever it is, it's, it, to me it sounds more like a psalm, like praise. Interesting way to start a letter. To start off a letter by praising God. Well, what's got him so excited? I'll come to that in a moment, but think about that. Now, this passage, Ephesians, how are you doing? Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 3 to 14. It's written in Greek. You should know that. Um, and it's pretty dense and complicated in Greek. Uh, and there's another reason why it's really complicated in Greek than just it's Greek. <laughs> it's one sentence. It's one continuous sentence. Uh, this sentence clocks in at 202 words. One sentence. Now, the next sentence is almost as long. And then there's another few long sentences in this letter. And... It's almost like either Paul is super excited in his prison cell, like I can't get it out, I don't have time for punctuation and commas and periods, I'm just going to keep writing. Or it's a very intentional, dense sentence that needs to be unpacked with great care and patience. Uh, But Paul writes long sentences. Believe it or not, this is not Paul's longest sentence. The longest sentence attributed to Paul is in the letter to the Colossians, which is like 212 words. And it's a very similar, it has a similar flavor to this this passage here. It seems like when Paul wants to talk about praising God or what God has done, he doesn't have time for punctuation. There might be a lesson in that. Um, but, But Paul starts the letter in praise about what I think is true about what is the what the truth is for the Ephesian Christians and as it turns out every Christian reader thereafter and he's excited about what God has done this is really really important the subject of the sentences and the finite verbs there's only I think two is God 
This is about what God has done, not what you were worthy of, not what you have done. Paul is excited for the church, for himself, about what God has done. And if you notice, it's like a psalm even in another way. There's kind of like a chorus to this passage. Did you notice it? I don't have the verses up there, but he'll say in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. And in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. He'll keep coming back to that well. All this that I'm saying is true of y'all, God did for his own glory. Now, there's another uh, word that shows up or idea that shows up 11 times. How you doing? I know there's a lot of stats. We'll get to what, what it means. 11 times. He says either in Christ, in him, or in the beloved. That seems to be the theme of this passage. What's true of those who are in Christ? Over and over and over, he will bring it up. Now, what does it mean to be in Christ? That's a discussion people keep having. (laughs) Um, Some, and this is an attractive option, I think, but I think it falls short in a few ways. But uh, uh, so the idea would be the locative sense or the spatial sense. Okay, so here's the idea with this. To be in Christ means that your neighborhood is Christ. That's where you live. Your address, in Christ Lane. Right? That's your geography. If you looked at a map, there'd be in Christ, and that's where you are. Within the world. It's a location to be in Christ. That's fine. But I think whatever it is, it is at least a participation in Christ, which don't take that lightly. To participate in the Messiah, now I don't know if this needs to be said, but you do know Jesus' last name is not Christ. Right? You've heard this before, Mary and Joseph Christ, Jesus and Christ, right? That's not his last name, it's a title. It's a title. The Hebrew word is Messiah in English, right? It's, it's, a, it's the, the anointed Oily one, <laughs> the one who's been given uh, a, a kind of royal anointing. But to be in Christ is to participate in something. He's called our Lord, which is no doubt a hint at the name of God. Jesus, to be in Christ, is to be in God, to be in dead center of what God has always wanted for creation and it is not a left turn but then he'll say he'll say God chose you now of course the church has made enemies of within within the church out of passages like this what does it mean to be chosen by God I'll tell you this Paul's excited about it If you're chosen by God, you should be really, really grateful. And you should fall on your knees and praise God. Well, why did God choose the church in Ephesus? Why did God choose you? 
because you're awesome. Eh. Right? <laughs> Try again. Right? Survey says uh, Family Feud X. Uh, that's not why. Because God has always been in the business of curating a people. Not a person or a collection of persons, but a family. Multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multicultural family. We talked about this last week. God created Israel by calling Abram and his barren wife in their elderly years. He created Adam to rule and reign and keep and guard. They were created for a purpose. Abraham was called for a purpose. It's a creation story. The creation of Israel is a story about God doing what He always does, which is to be a creator. And you won't be surprised to learn then that the church is in fact a new creation, a work of God. That we, uh, we are also in that kind of, as we're called, we are created to be a brand new kind of people. We're chosen. Now, the other fancy theological term is elected. Elected by God. Now, when you elect the president, do you try to think of the one you want to encourage most and then give him your vote? That's not what it means to elect somebody to build them up and make them feel special. We elect them for a reason. Same with the church. We are not elected just to say, look how much I love you. God says that, by the way. I'll show you. How much God loves you is uh, it's unbelievable. It really is almost unbelievable. It's a strain to believe the love of God. But he doesn't do it just for that. He's raising up a people to respond to the fallenness of creation. He raises up a people to do his will in his world, to become actors in the drama. Jim Carrey performing Andy Kaufman kind of actors in the drama. And he chooses them. Look at what God says. How you doing? Okay, quiet. Just making sure you're still awake. It is like 90 degrees in October, so I wouldn't be mad if you fell asleep. Um, look, at what, look at what the Lord says a few times in Deuteronomy about Israel. To you, that is speaking to Israelites about to enter their promised land, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him out of heaven. He let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire. He's talking about Mount Sinai. You could read it yourself, Exodus chapter 20. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire, and because he loved you. Now, don't think sentimental love like God was just like in love with you or something. This is more like loyal uh, fidelity. Uh, God Loved your fathers and he chose their offspring. It's talking about Abram. Look a little later. It was not because you were more in number that, than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. 
that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So they're saying God didn't choose you because you're great, because you're cranking on campus, or because you're morally perfect. He chose you out of his own commitment to what he promised a long time ago when he made the world. Look at it again. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and he chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Look again. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God and the Lord has chosen you. Now think what Paul is saying to the church. If you are in Christ, those words are for you. That you have been chosen by God. When did you get chosen? The second you heard that word and you believed what was said in such a way that it did something fundamentally all the way down in you to change your life. You entered into the people of God, the new creation which God is making to continue his project of bringing salvation. How are you doing? It doesn't stop anywhere near there, of course. But what he says, this is crazy. Paul says, he's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Okay, that's not super clear probably. There's a lot of stuff we could talk about there. We probably should uh, in our homes and in our times together. But we know the mystery. You ever think like God is mysterious? He certainly is mysterious. And that's a different discussion. But when Paul says there's, God has a mystery, he doesn't mean it's like Sherlock Holmes and we need to go get our magnifying glasses and figure it out and put together the clues. The mystery according to Paul, is in fact not a mystery, but it's baffling if your heart ended up being hard. Because what's the mystery? He'll go on, we can read the whole letter to find out. It's that God is allowing Gentiles, uncircumcised folk, to enter the people of God without becoming Jews. They can come as they are, as broken people who lived in a world without God. He says, now you've got a God, I'll be your God. It's pretty awesome. That's the mystery. That's the whole thing it was aimed at. That's what God was thinking about with Adam. That's what God was thinking about with Abram. Was the nations coming in and having this loving God. He was using Israel to display his own mercy and love. That they might see and say, I want a God like that. But look at this. What is God doing in Jesus Christ? Saving souls? Think bigger. Think bigger. Jesus isn't just here to save your ever-loving soul for the post-afterlife. God is, in Christ Jesus, unifying all things in heaven and on earth. That's about as big as you can get. This is creation restoration. Jesus' appearance in the flesh, God incarnate, brings with him the reign and rule of God, which messes with creation. There's a new world afoot, right in the middle of the old world. 
And we are a part of both. God is unifying everything. Jesus is like the focal point of all creation. And the church are the people who live in him and see it. It's like this. There is a world. uh, Paul calls this the flesh. And by the flesh, he doesn't mean like your body. He means sin and death. He means that desire that is bent, Augustine's words, disordered loves. There's a world we live in. You live in it. You see it every day. It's a world governed by sin and death. It's referred to as the world, right? We talk about the world in the church. The present age is another way of talking about this world. This is the world that we inhabit, where we are born, suffer, and die and attend funerals, have more children. There's beauty in it. Because we are not God. We're not created to, like, immortal. And that's not to say life is meaningless. That's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about. But the idea is that at the end of the day, death is still an obstacle to the flourishing which God wants for human beings. And we live addicted to, enslaved to, obsessed with sin and idolatry. You too. Not just me. All of us. But then there is another world. The reign of God or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven uh, in the Bible. Or it's called the new creation or the age to come. So you have these two realities being described in Scripture. The present age of fallenness and the age to come. And they sit right next to one another. You ever heard the term, uh, the veil is thin? You know this phrase? Places in the world where you feel like the veil separating us from heaven gets thin and you can almost see through it. It's kind of like that. God's reign and rule is set up right next to the old dying world. Eternal life and sin and death. But it's not just that they're sitting next to one another. It's that they overlap. Jesus Christ being the King, God Himself, heaven on earth, makes an appearance and brings heaven down to our fallen world. And He he stands in both places, the dying world and the reign of God, right there on top of one another, overlapping. Jesus is the overlap. But look at this, if you are in Christ, you are at the overlap of these two realities. This is what it means to live in Christ. You see, what God is doing is bigger than you. It's even bigger than the church. But the church is a part of this. I love, I don't love, but I like what Chris Wright has said. God doesn't have a mission for the church. He has a church for his mission. That God has summoned the church to be something so much bigger than herself. But here's the idea. Paul says he's summing everything up in Christ or he's unifying all things in Christ. Here's the idea. Just the reign of God. That's where this train is headed. Where all is new creation, restoration, new heavens and new earth. And you're the church. 
I don't care about any of that. I just don't want to go to hell. Well, you're thinking too small because you're a part of something massive to be in Christ. You sit at the overlap. Which world looks more like you, church? Which world? You're in both. Which one has your allegiance? Which script are you performing? Because you're no longer your own. And he ends his passage with that. He's given his very self, his spirit, to seal you off. Which is a way of saying, you belong to me, not to yourself or to the present age. You're not from there anymore. You are from the future. You're from where creation is headed. Live like that. I praise God that that's the case, Paul says. I praise God. God, that he's blessed us so much that we don't live without him, that we're not dead to reality, that we're not asleep just going through our day with our jobs and our families and our measly dreams, as C.S. Lewis will describe. But he's given us a vision for the world that is energy for living for God. Okay, let's go. How are you doing? We're almost there. But here's what I think the point is of all of this. Paul is praising God for who you are, who we are. Now, we live in an age, it's not new, it's not like this is the first time from my understanding in history, but it's an odd kind of pressure in our moment to create ourselves. You're in the church and don't think you're immune. You also are trying to create your life, your careers, your image, what people think of you, your dreams, your hopes. We have them. We are all being sold this lie that it's up to us to forge our identities, to create who we are and who we want to be. You want it, you can do it. That's a lie, by the way. You can't do everything you want. Why lie like that? It's not, it's not about us carving out our niche in the world, having our success. In fact, I would argue with others that that's why we're in the terrible situation we're in. Because as people, we ain't wired for that. We aren't creative enough to find a good identity. And we exhaust ourselves. And it mutates into weird, confusing ways of looking at God's good world and sex and gender and whatever else. Because we're confused. We're trying to find our place in the world. The argument of Scripture is you're not made for that. That's not for you to decide. And it's almost like this breath of relief, Paul. You don't have to try to figure that out anymore, guys. You were made by God. You belong to Him. Our identity, who we are, is in Christ. We all struggle with, does God love me? Well, not all of us. Many of us do. Did God really choose? Am I really part of that chosen group? Does God actually, has He washed away my filth and trespasses? How do I know the Spirit of God is active in my life? I keep failing in the same places. How do I know? I don't know what to think about what you just said, Paul. I hear Paul saying, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think about yourself. This is what's true. This is what's true of you in Christ. That's why I'm praising God. 
Not because I'm trying to convince you of it. I'm telling you, this is who you are if you are in Christ. And God did that, not so that you would be excited, but for the praise of his own glory. So that when anyone would look at the church, they would be like, look at those awesome people. Say, look what God did with those people. Look what God, look at the love and wisdom he lavished. And later in the letter, Paul will say, God's using the church to teach the heavenly powers a lesson. That they're like, oh my goodness, God is gracious. Look at what he did with the people. They don't even know if they can believe what he's done. It's so amazing. But God has saved a people. And that's the truth. Live into that reality and identity. I struggle with this. Most of you, well, you don't know because I'm new here. But I could tell you, you probably already knew this just by looking at me. Um, But you know that... uh, (laughs) My whole aim in life was to be like the, the illest MC y'all ever met. Like, you would never meet me. You would just see me on the silver screen. But, like, my whole world was, you know, writing rhymes, cutting records, like, writing graffiti. I, I didn't break dance, but I played records for him. I'm too big for that. But, like, hip-hop was my life. It was my life. In fact, when I came into the church, I came in with my whole crew. We're all like, we're all like in the, we're like, welcome to church. Like, we're all in a pew, like, like, yo, what's happening? That was my identity. Man, was I confused. I'm from small town, rural Wisconsin, but I thought in my mind I was from South Bronx. (laughs) But when I became a Christian, that identity hurt me quite a bit. Not because it's bad. I actually think there's a lot of like, hip-hop is still a big part of my life. But, but my point is that I was still unsure of who I was without hip-hop. I didn't know what to, like, I'm just a big white dude. Like, I'm not, there's nothing impressive. I'm D-minus student. Like, at least when I come in like, like this, people are like, oh, yo, like, Jason, Jason's ill. Like, he's dope. And so letting that go was a real battle for me. And that was an identity I had to keep up. And you can imagine how hard it is for a big white dude from Wisconsin to keep that up. When I became a Christian, I then went to school to learn Hebrew for a long time. And that was like hip-hop act two for me. Because now I'm not Mr. Hip-hop, I'm Mr. Scholar. And now you'll know who I am because of what I know and what I've learned. Jason's really smart. Oh, yes, I know. I didn't, I'm not like aware that that's happening, but in me there's still this clamoring for identity and who I am and how do I market myself and how do I justify my existence and what you guys think of me or what other people think of me. And Paul is saying, I praise God that that's not how it is. I praise God that it's not about you trying to justify your existence, but rather living into the true identity as those who live at the overlap and are safe in God's care. It's pretty exciting. And it has everything to do with the Lord's table, to which we will now turn. Um, I love this. Do I still have power here? Wait. Wait. I pointed at that. It's back there, isn't it? This is great. Michael Gorman. He says, for Paul, however, the cross is more than the source of our salvation. It is also its shape. 
Paul cannot talk for long, if at all, about the cross without connecting it to life in Christ. And he cannot speak about life in Christ for long, if at all, without linking it to Christ crucified. I don't have the symbol with me, the, the bread and the cup. Does someone have one? Yeah. Don't throw me one, would you mind? Just do communion. <laughs> Holy cow. Sorry about that. Jeez, that's probably a sin. Um, this is our life. This is the source of our being saved. It's also the shape of that salvation. The cross isn't just what saved us. It's what salvation looks like. We stand at the overlap and participate in Christ. This meal reminds us of God's love, but it also tells us what salvation looks like. It looks like broken open and poured out. It looks like Jesus Christ. So we're reminded of the love of God, but we're reminded of where, when, who, and why we are by this meal. The truth, all of that truth about who we are is brought to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it also gives us a roadmap to what that new life actually looks like. To stand at the overlap is to participate in the life of Christ. Do you know what the life of Christ looks like? Go read the gospel. Read more of Paul's letters. See, Michael Gorman said he can't just talk about the one and not the other. If we're going to talk about the, the Lord's table, we're also going to talk about how that's our life. I praise God like Paul does that this is true for us. And I, I think our challenge, seeing that we're a big part of the story, we're not off to the side and it was all Israel, we are in the story. And our struggle is to live out of this truth even when you're not convinced it is true. To lean into what Paul is saying here. So important. With that, let's pray. God, we thank you for this meal. Sorry, thank you. Um, Father, we thank you for the bread, the body, the juice, and the blood. We thank you, God, that this meal means your love. It describes in this, this little thimble our whole life. The security and blessed assurance we have because of what you've done. I thank you for Paul's long run-on sentences of praise. I thank you that he says more than we could unpack in a lifetime. And that the truth of it, the takeaway is that you are beyond loving. I thank you that you created us, called us, not for just an arbitrary reason or even for our own source of encouragement, but for your own glory. That our very lives being forgiven is a witness to your great love. I pray, God, you catch us up in this story which sits in this cup. I pray, Father, that you help us to identify with but participate in your life. We pray these things in Jesus our Lord. Amen.